Welcome to today's VJ Hemonc podcast. Today, we'll be hearing about exciting research into the role of MRD for the management and treatment of multiple myeloma, which was presented at the EHA 2021 meeting. Our first guest is Bruno Paiva from the University of Navarra in Spain, and he's going to talk us through some data from the phase 3 tourmaline MM3 and tourmaline MM4 trials, both of which randomised patients to receive either exazomib or placebo maintenance. Over to you, Bruno. At EJ, I am pleased to present data on behalf of uh, my co-authors, on which may represent the largest data set with MRD data collected during maintenance in the phase three randomized clinical trials to malign MM3 and MM4 which randomized either transplant eligible as well as non-transplant candidates to receive oral exasomib or placebo for up to two years as a maintenance strategy. Our results, I believe, are important as they provide three or four key messages. Number one is the confirmation that MRD assessment prior to maintenance is prognostically relevant. Number two, that the prognostic value of MRD assessment is enhanced by measuring throughout maintenance and MRD kinetics are much more powerful in stratifying risk. And this is because patients that convert from MRD positive to negative have favorable outcome similar to those with sustained negative MRD. On the contrary, patients that convert from MRD negative to positive have clearly inferior PFS, almost similar to those patients with persistent MRD throughout maintenance. Therefore, reappearance of MRD as well as persistent MRD emerge during maintenance as high-risk features that could warrant individualized treatment approaches. In this regard, exasomib showed to be of benefit when compared to placebo in singular patient populations, particularly those associated with MRD reappearance as well as persistent MRD. Collectively, this study clearly demonstrates the value of MRD kinetics throughout maintenance and more importantly, that achieving or sustaining negative MRD should be considered as an endpoint also of maintenance treatment. Next up, we have Noemi Puig from the University Hospital Salamanca in Spain. Noemi, could you please walk us through the update on the GEM 2021 MENO SX5 trial, which was presented at EHA this year? A summary of the, um, of the abstract uh, that the organizers of the EHA have selected for uh, presentation and that uh, we have entitled uh, Serum Protein Electrophoresis and Immune Fixation versus Mass Spectrometry for Response Assessment in Newly Diagnosed Multiple Myeloma Patients from the Gen 2012 MENO-65 clinical trial. Uh, various studies have shown that mass spectrometry could be a more sensitive method as compared to protein electrophoresis and immune fixation 
application for detecting the M protein as a biomarker in serum samples from patients with myeloma. So the aim of this study was to compare mass spectrometry against the standard techniques, that is with serum protein electrophoresis and mainly immune fixation for the detection of the monoclonal component in multiple myeloma patients enrolled in the Pithima GEM 2012-Menosesentifinco trial. So we included uh, the first 186 out of the 458 newly diagnosed multiple myeloma patients enrolled in this trial. The presence of the, the, presence of the M protein in serum was evaluated in parallel by immune fixation and by mass spectrometry using IgG, AM, Kappa Lambda, Free Kappa and Free Lambda isotypic specific beats. And both tests were carried out after induction at day 100 post transplant and after consolidation. So first, we analyzed the percentage of cases with a detectable monoclonal component with serum protein electrophoresis and an immune fixation and by mass spectrometry. And so uh, serum protein electrophoresis and immune fixation, that is the conventional methods, identified the presence of an M protein in 52% of cases post-induction, 36% post-transplant and 27% post-consolidation. And in contrast, mass spectrometry did so in 63% of patients post-induction, 46% post-transplant and 35% post-consolidation. So then we analyzed the results of the analysis of pair results of both methods. So the percentage of concordances uh, was around 85% at the three time points analyzed, and most discordances were due to samples positive by mass spectrometry and negative by immune fixation, representing 14% of cases post-induction, 12 post-transplant, and 12 post-consolidation. And in five cases post-induction, four post-transplant, and seven post-consolidation, the monoclonal component was exclusively detected by immune fixation. And uh, once confirmed the higher ability of mass spectrometry to detect the M protein as compared to standard methods, we compared the respective clinical value in terms of progression-free survival at the end of the treatment, that is post-consolidation. And uh, so whereas there were no statistically significant differences in the progression-free survival of positive and negative patients by serum protein electrophoresis and immune fixation, the progression-free survival of those patients in whom a monoclonal component could be detected by mass spectrometry was significantly lower as compared to those in whom a monoclonal component could not be identified. So when we investigated the 127 patients achieving CR post-consolidation, we found out that mass spectrometry was able to identify the presence of a monoclonal component in 21 of them, and further the identification of the monoclonal component by mass spectrometry in this group of patients in a standard CR, that is with immune fixation negative, was associated with a significantly shorter progression-free survival. So in conclusion, as compared to standard methods to detect the monoclonal component in serum, in this study, mass spectrometry identified the presence of the paraprotein in a higher proportion of patients throughout monitoring, was able to discriminate two groups of patients with different progression-free survival at treatment completion, and identified residual disease in a cohort of patients in a standard CR, but at increased risk of progression. Finally, we have Benjamin Derman, and he's going to give us an overview of a phase two MRD adaptive trial of elotuzumab, carfilzomib, nelanidomide, and dexamethasone for newly diagnosed patients with multiple myeloma. Um, this was a phase two study that was conducted through the Multiple Myeloma Research Consortium at four different sites. Um, a total of 46 patients have been enrolled, and that's complete. Um, 44 patients were valuable um, before the, the cutoff uh, for, for this abstract. 
Um, and the study design is that uh, all patients proceed with 12 cycles of quadruplet therapy, elotuzumab combined with carfilzomib, lenalidomide, dexamethasone. I'll call it ELOKRD for short. And uh, after eight cycles, all patients underwent MRD testing by next-generation sequencing, and then again after 12 cycles. And the idea is that patients who were negative uh, by MRD uh, after both cycle eight and cycle 12 could proceed with ELO-RD alone, so dropping the carfilzomib. Patients who were positive after cycle 12, regardless of their cycle eight result, would continue with 12 additional cycles of ELO-KRD and then followed by ELO-RD maintenance. Patients who were uh, positive at cycle eight but converted to negativity at cycle 12 uh, would receive six additional cycles of ELO-KRD, so slightly shorter amount, and then ELO-RD maintenance. And the primary endpoint for the study was really looking at stringent complete response and or MRD negativity rates after cycle eight, with a goal being greater than 50%. Now, some of the interesting things before I get to the results is that um, a high percentage of patients on this study actually had high-risk disease by fish cytogenetics, which we uh, defined as a translocation of 414, 1416, 1420, 1Q gain or amplification, and or 17P deletion. So 57% were high risk. And 32% actually had two or more of these abnormalities, so-called double hit. About 34 of the 39 patients who had um, a baseline sample already sent for uh, what we call clonality ID to enable MRD tracking by NGS uh, had um, a trackable clone, so that's about 87%. Um, and, and that's really what makes up these, these patient characteristics. I think the one other thing is to mention is we, we actually recruited about 20% um, uh, minorities, uh, which is, I think, an important piece of this. Um, so when you think about the results um, from the study, what I think is relevant is, first of all, from the primary endpoint standpoint, 58% of patients thus far uh, have uh, achieved either a stringent complete response and or MRD negativity. And the reason that we chose this and or is because there are patients who uh, may have IgG kappa paraprotein where elotuzumab may actually register as a positive uh, on, the, on the immunofixation. And so it's hard to distinguish between those who uh, have a positive uh, IFIX due to paraprotein versus the uh, monoclonal antibody itself but MRD negativity can serve as sort of a uh, adjudicator of that. Um, now, it's important to note that none of the patients who were MRD negative at cycle eight have progressed thus far. Um, and that includes six patients who had high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities. So I think that's a really important piece. The other thing to make note of is the overall response rate was actually very high, it was 97%. And when we look at um, the uh, combined patients who are in a complete response, at least a complete response, and uh, MRD negativity, we're looking at 33% with still more patients required to make it through the, the primary endpoint at cycle eight. So I think that's something you know, really important to mention. One of the interesting things that we found here was really looking at the complementarity in MRD testing, both by next generation sequencing, which was part of our primary endpoint, but also an exploratory endpoint of mass spectrometry. And we actually chose to use mass spectrometry here because it can actually help distinguish between the therapeutic monoclonal antibody and the paraprotein that may be seen. Um, and what we found is that there was a fair amount of discordance 
between NGS and in the bone marrow and mass spectrometry as performed by liquid chromatography in the peripheral blood. There's actually about 35% discordance um, in total. But that discordance was split between those who had detectable disease by mass spec and undetectable disease by NGS, which was about 15.5%. And the other 19% were patients who had undetectable disease by mass spec, but detectable by next generation sequencing. And now we're seeing this in several other trials where uh, mass spectrometry and NGS actually have this complementarity to them. You're testing two different compartments and getting uh, additional information from that. Survival data is a little immature. Um, right now, uh, what we know is that patients who had standard risk disease, there's 100% two-year PFS and overall survival. We should hope that that would be the case. And for the high-risk patients, the two-year PFS was 79%, and the estimated overall survival at two years is 82% for high-risk patients. So we still need some additional long-term follow-up to really understand what is the impact of MRD negativity at these early time points um, and as patients go through um, the protocol. Um, you know, one last thing I want to say is that I think this MRD adaptive design which is uh, becoming a little bit more common with other, uh, in other trial designs, I, I think allows us to be able to de-escalate therapy as time goes on and can provide us with you know, uh, good efficacy, treatments that have excellent efficacy really, while also reducing some of the toxicities and hopefully improving quality of life for patients. That's the last update we have for you today. So I'd like to wrap up by thanking all of our experts for taking the time to speak with us. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast on MRD and multiple myeloma. You can follow us on Twitter at VJHemonk to share your thoughts on the topics discussed. You can also visit VJHemonk.com for more updates on MRD, immuno-oncology, and much, much more in the field of hematological oncology. Finally, be sure to subscribe to VJHemonk podcasts, which are available on Spotify, Apple, and Podbeam. <laughs>